0: 114. Broken Gods They should not be discarded, but helped to their potential, their final passions. Musings of L on the first of the final ten days. Relaine walked with Benly and his new friends, Dull, Mazish, and the others Benly had recruited, to the Oath Gate where Caladin waited to transfer them to the shattered plains. Rolane felt in a stupor, despite a day having passed since his revelation, since speaking his first words as a truth watcher. The spren had been watching him from the heart of a Kremling. Rolaine and Venley had mistaken Toomey for a void spren, but he wasn't exactly the same thing. Once an ordinary mist spren, Toomey had let Jah not touch him, and in so doing make him into something new, a spren of both honor and odium. Toomey pulsed to a new rhythm, the rhythm of war, something he had learned recently, something important for his siblings to hear. Renora knows, Relaine thought. He suggested you to me, said, and our mother told about you. he was right, our bond will be strong, and you will be wondrous. We are awed by you, Relaine, the bridger of mines. we are honored, honored that felt good to be chosen because of what he'd done. Calladon waited for them at the transfer room. He made the transfer with the sill blade. The air of the shattered plains was wetter and felt familiar to Relaine. As they stepped onto a platform outside Narok, there they met with Leshwi and the other four fused, who, upon being transferred here earlier, had regained consciousness. Leshwi hovered over and tipped her head toward Calladon in respect. You could stay here at Narok, Kaladin said to her. We'd welcome your aid. We fought against our own to preserve lives, Leshwy said. We do not wish that to continue. We will find a third option outside this war, the path of the listeners. We'll find our way out here, Venley said to Confidence. Somehow. Well. Go with honor, then, Kaladin said, and with the queen's promise. If you change your minds, or if you and yours need refuge, we'll take you in. The heavenly ones took to the air, humming to praise. They began lowering the new listeners and their supplies down into the chasm for the hike eastward. With the high storm past and with fused to watch for chasm fiends from above, they should be able to make their way to the eastern flats where the other listeners had gone. Relaine gave Venley a hug and hummed to praise. I don't deserve any of this, she whispered to him. I was weak, Relaine. Then start doing better, he told her, pulling back. That is the path of radiance, Venley. We're both on it now. Write me via span read once you find the others, and give my best to Thud and Harvo if they made it. She hummed to appreciation. You will come to us soon? Soon, he promised, then watched her go. Kaladin stepped up beside Relaine and rested a hand on his shoulder. Relaine couldn't feel the plate, though it was apparently always there, invisible but ready when needed. Like a shard blade, but made up of many Spren. Kaladin didn't ask if Relaine wanted to leave with the others. Relaine had established that he needed to stay, at least until Renoran returned. Beyond that, well, there was something Relaine had started to fear. Something nebulous, but, once it occurred to him, persistent. If the humans had a chance to win this war, but at the expense of taking the minds of all the singers as they'd done in the past— Would they take it? Would they enslave an entire people again, if given the opportunity? The thought disturbed him. He trusted Kaladin and his friends, but humankind? That was asking a lot. Someone needed to remain close in order to watch and be certain. He would visit the listeners, but he was a radiant, and he was Bridge Four. Eratheru was his home. Come on, Kaladin said. It's time to go give Teft a proper send off. Among Friends. Teravangian's vision expanded, his mind expanded, his essence expanded. Time started to lose meaning. How long had he been like this? He became the power. With it, he began to understand the Cosmere on a fundamental level. He saw that his predecessor had been sliding toward oblivion for a long, long time. Weakened by his battles in the past, then deeply wounded by honor, this being had been enslaved by the power. Failing to claim Dalinar, then losing the tower and storm Blessed, had left the being frail, vulnerable. But the power was anything but frail. It was the power of life and death, of creation and destruction, the power of gods. In his specific case, the power of emotion, passion, and, most deeply, the power of raw, untamed fury, of hatred unbound. In this new role, Teravangian had two sides— On one was his knowledge, ideas, understandings, truths, lies. Thousands upon thousands of possible futures opened up to him. Millions of potentials. So numerous that even his expanded godly mind was daunted by their variety. On the other side was his fury. The terrible fury, like an unbridled storm, churned and burned within him. It, too, was so overwhelming he could barely control it. He was aware of what he'd left behind in the mortal realm. Zeth had long since climbed to his feet and sheathed nightblood. Beside him, the assassin had found a burned-out corpse, mostly eaten by the sword's attack. That was Ray's, Teravangian's predecessor. But Zeth wasn't able to tell. The sword had consumed clothing and most of the flesh, leaving bits of stone-grey bone. They think that's me, Teravangian thought, reading the possible futures. Zeth didn't see what happened to me spiritually. He doesn't know Odium was here. Almost all possible futures agreed. Zeth would confess that he'd gone to kill Teravangian, but somehow Teravangian had drawn night blood— And the weapon had consumed him. They thought him dead. He was free. Free to destroy, to burn, to wreak havoc and terror upon those who had doubted him. No. No free to plan, to devise a way to save the world from itself. He could see so far, see so much. He needed to think, to burn. No to plot, to, to. Terebendian was startled as he became aware of something else, a growing power nearby, visible only to one such as him, a godly power, infinite and burdened. He was not alone. They gave Teft a king's funeral, soul-casting him to stone. A sculptor would be commissioned to create a depiction of Fenderana to erect next to him. The sibling said there was a room, locked away, where the ancient radiance stood forever as stone sentries. It would feel good to see Teft among them, in uniform and looking at them all with a scowl despite the embalmer's best efforts. It felt right. All of Bridge Four came, except for Rock. Scar and Dre had relayed the news after returning to the Shattered Plains. It seemed Kaladin wouldn't be seeing Rock again. Together, the men and women of Bridge Four praised Teft, drank to him, and burned prayers for him in turn. Afterward, they sought a tavern to continue celebrating in a way Teft would have loved, even if he wouldn't have let himself participate. Kaladin waited as they drifted away. They kept checking on him, of course, worried for his health, worried about the darkness. He appreciated each and every one of them for it, but he didn't need that type of help today. He was kind of all right. A good night's sleep and finding peace restored to the tower had helped. So he sat there, looking at the statue created from Teft's body. The others finally seemed to sense he needed to be alone so they left him. Sill landed beside him, fully sized, in a Bridge Four uniform. He could faintly feel her when she rested her head on his shoulder. We won't stop missing him, will we? She asked softly. No. but That's all right. So long as we cling to the moments we had. I can't believe you're taking this better than I am. I thought you said you were recovering. I am, she said. This still hurts, though. Once the tower had been restored, she'd mostly returned to herself. Some of what she'd felt had been gloom from what Raboniel had done. Some of it wasn't. We could ask Dalinar, Kaladin said. If maybe there's something wrong with you. A bond or something unnatural. He won't find one. I'm merely alive. And this is part of being alive. So I'm grateful, even if part of it stinks. He nodded. Really stinks, she added. Then for good measure. Stinks like a human after- How long has it been since you had a bath? He smiled, and the two of them remained there, looking up at Teft. Kaladin didn't know if he believed in the Almighty- or in the Tranquiline Halls, or whether people lived after they died. Yes, he'd seen something in a vision, but Dalinar had seen many dead people in his visions, and that didn't mean they still lived somewhere. He didn't know why Tien had given the wooden horse to him, as if to prove the vision was real, only for it to immediately vanish. That seemed to indicate Kaladin's mind had fabricated the meeting. He didn't let it prevent him from feeling that he'd accomplished something important. He'd laid down a heavy burden. The pain didn't go away, but most of the shame, that he let fall behind him. Eventually, he stood up and embraced Teft's statue. Then he wiped his eyes and nodded to Syl. They needed to keep moving forward, and that involved deciding what he was going to do with himself now that the crisis had ended. Terevangian grew more capable by the moment. The power molded him as he bridled it. He stepped to the edge of infinity, studying endless possibilities as if they were a million rising suns and he were standing on the bank of an eternal ocean. It was beautiful. A woman stepped up beside him, he recognized her full hair, black and tightly curled, along with her vibrant round face and dark skin. She had another shape as well, many of them, but one deeper and truer than the others. Do you understand now, she asked him. You needed someone who could tempt the power, Teravangian said, his light gleaming like gold but also someone who could control it. I asked for the capacity to save the world. I thought it was the intelligence, but later wondered if it was the ability to feel. In the end, it was both. You were preparing me for this. Odium's power is the most dangerous of the sixteen, she said. It ruled Ray's, driving him to destroy. It will rule you, too, if you let it. They showed you this possibility, I assume, Teravangian said, looking at infinity. But this isn't nearly as certain as I imagined it. It shows you things that can happen, but not the hearts of those who act. How did you dare try something like this? How did you know I'd be up to the challenge? I didn't, she said. I couldn't. You were heading this direction. All I could do was hope that if you succeeded, my gift would work. That I had changed you into someone who could bear this power with honor. Such power, such incredible power. Terevangian peered into infinity. He'd wanted to save his city and had succeeded. After that, he'd wanted to save Roshar. He could do that now. He could end this war. Storms, Dalinar, and Odium's contract, which bound Terevangian just as soundly, would do that already. But beyond that, what of the entire Cosmere? He couldn't see that far yet. Perhaps he would eventually be able to. But he did know his predecessor's plans and had access to some of his knowledge. So Teravangian knew the Cosmere was in chaos, ruled by fools, presided over by broken gods. There was so much to do. He sorted through Odium's previous plans and saw all their flaws. How had he let himself be maneuvered into this particular deal with Dalinar? How had he let himself rely so much upon a contest of champions? Didn't he know? The way to win was to make sure that, no matter the outcome, you were satisfied. Odium should never have entered a deal he could not absolutely control. It can still be done, Terabangian realized, seeing the possibilities so subtle that his predecessor had missed. Yes, Dalinar has set himself up to fail. I can beat him. Terra Cultivation said, holding her hand out to him. Come, let me teach you about what you've been given. I realize the power is overwhelming, but you can control it. You can do better than rays ever did. He smiled and took her hand. Inside he exulted. Oh, you wonderful creature, he thought. You have no idea what you have done. He was finally free of the frailties of his body and position that had always controlled and defined him. He finally had the freedom to do what he desired. And now, Terepangian was going to save them all.
1: 115. Testament.
0: Yes, I look forward to ruling the humans. Musings of El on the first of the final ten days.
1: Shallan sat by candlelight, writing quietly in her notebook. Adeline pulled his chair up beside her. She looks better, he said, than she did when I saw her in the market. But I don't know, Chalon Shallan put down the pen, then took his hands, glancing to the side, where, in their little chamber in lasting integrity, her first spren sat on a chair, pattern standing beside her and humming. Had the limp fibers of her head pattern straightened? In talking with pattern, they decided upon an Alethi name for Shallon's previous cryptic, one that fit, best they could tell, with the meaning of her individual pattern. Testament does seem better, Adeline. Shallan said. Thank you for speaking with her. Maya sat on the floor, cross-legged. In a kind of warrior's pose. She hadn't recovered completely, but she was improved. And though she still didn't say much, Shallan doubted many beings, human or Spren, had ever spoken words quite so valuable as Maya had at the trial. One might say, by simple economics, that Maya was one of the best orators who ever existed. If you aren't going to say much, then you might as well make what you do say mean something it gave them hope that whatever Shallan had done to testament could also be repaired i'll try to explain everything Maya and i have done adeline said as honorspren bells rang somewhere near but the truth is i don't think either of us know and i'm not exactly an expert on all this recent events considered i think you're the only expert Shallan reached up and cupped his face. Thank you, Adolin, for? Being you, I'm sorry for the secrets. You did tell me, he said, eventually. He nodded toward the knife with the gemstone, still unused, which rested beside her open notebook on one side of the table. The cube Marese had sent rested on the other side. The bells are ringing. Time. She removed her hand and situated herself at the desk. Adeline fell silent, waiting and watching as Shallan lifted the top of Marais's cube. With help from Kaleck, they'd gotten it open without harming the thing inside—a spren in the shape of a glowing ball of light, a strange symbol at the center. No one here recognized the variety of spren, but Wit called it a Sion are you well, Ailey, Shallan asked. It was said like A-lay. Yes, the spren whispered. You can come out of the cube. You don't need to live in there anymore. I'm supposed to stay. I'm not supposed to talk to you, to anyone. Shallan glanced at Adolin. The odd spren resisted attempts to get it free. It acted like an abused child. Another in the list of Marais's crimes, Radiant thought. Agreed, Shallan replied. Radiant remained. They agreed that once they found the right path, she would eventually be absorbed as Vale had been. For now, Shallan's wounds were still fresh, practically bleeding. But what she'd done would finally let her begin to heal. And she knew why Pattern had always been so certain she would kill him, and why he'd acted like a newly bonded Spren when she'd begun noticing him on the ship with Yasna. The simple answer was the true one. He had been newly bonded. And Shallan had not one shard blade, but two. She still had questions. Things about her past didn't completely align yet, though her memory was no longer full of holes. There was much they didn't understand. For example, she was certain that during the years between killing testament and finding pattern, her powers had still functioned in some small ways. Some of this, Kaleck said, had to do with the nature of dead eyes. Before the recreants, they had never existed. Calec said he thought this was why Marais was hunting him, something to do with the fall of the Singers and the Night's Radiant so long ago, and the imprisoning of a specific spren. Contact Marais, please, spren, she whispered to the ball of light. It is time. The ball floated into the air, and the next part took barely a moment. The globe of light shifted to make a version of his face, speaking to her. Little knife, the face said in Marais' voice. I trust the deed has been done? I did it, Shallon said. It hurts so much. But she is gone. Excellent. That she, little knife. Vale and I are one now, Marais, Shallon said resting her hand on her notebook, which contained the fascinating things Kaleck had told her about other worlds, other planets, places he desperately wished to see. Like the other heralds, Kaleck wasn't entirely stable. He was unable to commit to ideas or plans. However, to one thing he had committed, he wanted off Roshar. He was convinced that Odium would soon take over the world completely and restart torturing all the heralds. Kaleck would do practically anything to escape that fate. There was a long pause from Marais. Shallan, he finally said, we do not move against other ghost bloods. I'm not one of the ghost bloods, Shallan said. None of us ever were, not fully and now we are stepping away. Don't do this. Think of the cost. My brothers, is that what you're referencing? You must know by now that they are no longer in the Tower Marais. Pattern and Wit got them out before the occupation even occurred. Thank you for this Sion, by the way. Wit says that unbound ones are difficult to come by, but they make for extremely handy communication across realms. You will never have your answers, Shalon. I have what I need, thank you very much, she said, as Adolin put a comforting hand on hers. I've been speaking to Kalek, the herald. He seems to think the reason you're hunting him is because of an unmade, Ba Edo Mishram, the one who connected to the singers long ago, giving them forms of power, the one who, when trapped, Stole the singers' minds and made them into parchment. Why do you want the gemstone that holds Ba Edo Mishram, Marais? What are you intending to do with it? What power do the ghost bloods seek with a thing that can bind the minds of an entire people? Moray's didn't respond. The Sion, imitating his face, hovered in place, expressionless. I'll be returning to the tower soon, Shallan said along with those honor spren who have decided, in light of recent revelations, to bond with humans. When I do, I expect to find you and yours gone. Perhaps if you cover yourself well, I won't be able to track you down. Either way, I am going to find that gemstone before you do. And if you get in my way, well, it will be a fun hunt, wouldn't you say? This will not end well for you, Shalon, Moraes said. You make an enemy of the most powerful organization in all the Cosmere. I think we can handle you. Perhaps. Can you handle my master? Can you handle her master? Thidakar? Shalon guessed. Ah, so you've heard of him. The Lord of Scars, Wit calls him. Well, When you next meet this Lord of Scars, give him a message from me. He comes here in Avatar only, Marais said. We are too far beneath his level to be worthy of more. Then tell his Avatar something for me. Tell him. We're done with his meddling. His influence over my people is finished. She hesitated, then sighed. Wit. Had asked nicely. Also, Wit says to tell him Deal with your own stupid planet, you idiot. Don't make me come over there and slap you around again. So it must be, Marais said. Know that in doing this, you have moved against the ghost bloods in the most offensive of ways. We are now at war, Shalon. You've always been at war. Shallan said, I've finally picked a side. Goodbye, Marais, end contact. The floating spren molded into a globe instead of Marais's face. Shallan sat back, trying not to feel overwhelmed. Whoever they are, Adolin said, we can handle them. Ever optimistic? Well, he had good reason. With the leaders of the honor spren in disgrace and lasting integrity open again to all who would visit, he had accomplished his mission. He'd been correct all along, both about the honor spren and about Shalon herself. Shalon reached forward and flipped to the next page in her notebook, where she'd done a drawing using Collect's descriptions. It showed a pattern of stars in the sky and listed the many worlds among them. Shallan had kept her head down too long. It was time to soar. The listeners raised bows toward Venley as she walked up to their camp, alone, after insisting that the others stay back a few hundred feet. She didn't blame the listeners for turning weapons against her. They assumed she had come to finish the job she'd started. So she raised her hands and hummed to peace, waiting, and waiting, and waiting. Finally, Thud himself emerged from behind their fortification of piled rocks. Storms it was good to see him. By the counts they'd done from the air, almost all of them must have made it through the narrows and out this side. A thousand listener adults, along with many children. Thud approached, wearing war form, but he stopped short of striking range. Venley continued to stand and hum, feeling a hundred bows focused on her. This eastern plain beyond the hills was a strange place, so open and full of a surprising amount of grass. Storms, Venley, Thud turned to dash back behind the fortifications. She realized he must have just now seen her patterns. She was wearing a form he'd never known, so of course he hadn't recognized her from a distance. Food, she called out, taking in enough stormlight to glow in the daylight. Food, please. He stopped, seeing her light. Did my mother make it, she asked to longing. Is she alive? She is, he called. But her mind is gone. I think I might have a way to heal her. Traitor, he shouted. You think I believe you? You would have had us killed. I understand, she said softly to Consolation. I deserve everything you can call me, and more. But I'm trying as I never did before. Please, listen to what I have to say. He wavered then crossed the stone to meet her. Do the others know where we are? Does the enemy know? I'm not sure, Venley said. The humans found you. One fused knew of you, but she is dead now. I don't know who she told. What is a fused? There's a lot you don't know, Venley said. Our gods have returned. Terrible as warned. I was largely responsible for this. Even if Relaine says he's certain they would have found their way back anyway. Food perked up at Relaine's name. We're going to have to do something to protect ourselves, Venley said. Something to make everyone leave us alone. She held out her hand, and a little spren in the shape of a comet flew up from the grass and started circling it. She's new to this realm, and a little confused, but she's seeking someone to bond and make into a radiant, like me and my friends. You came to us last time with a spren who wanted a bond, Thood said to reprimand. And what happened? This will be different, Venley said, alight with stormlight. I've changed. I promise you all the time you need to test my words to decide without being pushed. For now, please let me see my mother. He hummed to winds at last, a sign for her to follow as he started walking back to camp. Venli attuned joy. There are more of these spren that will make listeners into radiance, he asked. Yes, she said. How many? Hundreds, she said. The rhythm of joy grew loud inside Venley as she entered the camp, though many who saw her hummed to anxiety. She cared for only one sight an old singer woman sitting by a tent made from woven reeds. Venley's heart leaped, and the rhythms sounded more pure, more vibrant. Jack Slim really was alive. Venley rushed forward, collapsing to her knees before Jack Slim. Feeling as if she were again a child, in the good way, mother, she asked. Jack's limb looked up at her. There was no recognition in the old listener's eyes. Without her, Thude said, stepping up beside Venley, we're losing the songs. Nobody else who knew them escaped. It's all right, Venley said, wiping her tears. It's going to be all right. Timber within Venley let out a glorious song. Venley held out her hand, and the little light spren inched into the air, then began spinning around Venley's mother. The reachers were searching for people who exemplified their ideal freedom, and the listeners were the perfect representation. However, a radiant bond required volition. And her mother couldn't speak ideals, though the reachers indicated that the start of the bonding process didn't require that. They also thought becoming radiant would heal her mother, though they couldn't say for certain. Mental wounds were difficult, they explained, and healing depended greatly on the individual. Jack Slim could still want this, couldn't she? She could still choose. Listen, mother, Venly pled to peace. Hear me, please. Venly began singing the Song of Mornings, the first song she'd learned, her mother's favorite. As she sang, listeners gathered around, lowering their weapons. They started humming rhythms to match hers. When she finished, food knelt beside her. The little spren had slipped into Jack Slim's body to seek her gem heart, but no change had happened yet. Venley took out a stormlight sphere, but her mother did not drink it in. It was beautiful, Thude said. It's been too long since I heard one of the songs. I will restore them to you, Venley whispered. If you'll have me. I understand completely if you won't, but I've brought other Radiants with me, my friends, along with some of the enemy who have chosen to defect and become listeners. Thud hummed to skepticism. Again, if you turn me aside, that is understandable, Venley said. But at least listen to my friends. You're going to need allies to survive in this new world. A world of surge binders. We can't go alone as we did before. We're not alone, Thood said. I think you'll find that things have changed for us, as they have for you. Venley hummed to consideration. Then she heard a scraping sound, like rock on rock, or claws on rock. A shadow fell over Venley and she started, staring up at a powerful long neck with a wicked arrowhead face on the end. A chasm fiend, here, and no one was panicking. Storms. That's, she whispered. That's how you got out of the chasms that night? During the storm? Thud hummed confidence. Before she could demand answers, something else interrupted her. A voice. Venley? Venley? Is that you? Venley looked down to see that her mother's eyes had focused, seeing her. Your words, Venley, a distant female voice said in her mind, are now accepted.
0: 116. Mercy. Nearly as much as I look forward to serving you, newest Odium. Who was so recently one of them? You understand. And you are the one I've been waiting to worship. Musings of El on the first of the final ten days. Around four hours after Teft's funeral, Kaladin went looking for Dalinar. The Blackthorn had returned the previous night, but Caledon had been too exhausted that evening to do more than salute him, than find his bed. So he excused himself from the party at Jor's Winehouse and soared up toward the top of the tower. It felt good to fly up all on his own. Here, as reported by the messenger who'd brought him the news, Caledon and Syl found the bondsmith, er, uh, the Stormfather's bondsmith, taking reports with Navani, the other bondsmith. That was going to take some getting used to. Kaladin and Sill intended to linger outside the small council room until Dalinar finished his current meeting, but as soon as he saw them, he broke it off and came trotting over. Kaladin, he said, I've been meaning to speak with you. You've been busy, sir, Kaladin said. He glanced down at his uniform. Maybe I shouldn't be wearing this. Dalinar actually blushed. What a remarkable sight. About that, he said. I should have known I couldn't and shouldn't try to relieve someone like you from- Sir, Kaladin interrupted. He glanced at Syl, who nodded. He turned back to Dalinar. Sir, you were right. I had a lot of healing to do before I should be in command again. Even still, Delinar asked, glancing at Kaladin's forehead and the missing brands. After what you've accomplished? After swearing the fourth ideal? The ideals don't fix us, sir, Kaladin said. You know that. We have to fix ourselves. Perhaps with a little help. He saluted. We were on the correct path with me, sir. I need to take time away from the battle. Maybe so much time that I never return to full command. I have work to do, helping men like me and Dabid. I'd like your permission to continue. Granted, Dalinar said. You've grown, soldier. Few men have the wisdom to realize when they need help. Fewer still have the strength to go get it. Well done. Very well done. Thank you, sir, Caladin said. Dalinar hesitated. Something seemed to be troubling him. He put his hands behind his back, watching Kaladin. Everyone else was celebrating, not Dalinar. What is it, sir? Kaladin asked. I haven't made it public knowledge yet, but Odium and I have set a time for our contest of champions. That's excellent, Kaladin said. How long? Ten days. Ten days? Days? Delanar nodded. Sill gasped, and Kaladin felt a spike of alarm. He'd always kind of thought. He'd spent this year assuming that. Sir, Kaladin said, I can't. I know, son, Delinar said quietly. You weren't right for the champion job anyway. This is the sort of thing a man must do himself. Kaladin felt cold. Ten days. The war. Does this mean it will be over? One way or another, it will end, Dalinar said. The terms will enforce a treaty in ten days following the contest. The contest will decide the fate of Alethkar, among other items. Regardless, the hostilities will continue until that day, and so we must remain vigilant. I expect the enemy to make a play to capture what he can before the treaty finalizes borders. I perhaps made a miscalculation there. Regardless, an end is in sight. But I'm going to need help from someone before this contest arrives. The fight won't simply be a sword fight. I can't explain what it will be. I don't know that I understand yet either but I'm increasingly confident I need to master what I can of my powers. I don't know if I can help with that, sir, Kaladin said. Though we share a surge, our abilities seem very different. Yes, but there is one who can help me. Unfortunately, he's insane. And so, Kaladin, I do not need you as a soldier right now. I need you as a surgeon. You are of the few who personally understand what it means to have your own mind betray you. Would you be willing to go on a mission to recover this individual and find a way to help him, so he can help me? Of course, sir, Kaladin said. Who is it? The Herald Ishii, Dalinar said. Creator of the Oath Pact, Herald of Truth and Original Binder of the Fused. Sill whistled softly. sir. Kaladin said, feeling unnerved. Ten days isn't enough to help someone with ordinary battle shock. It will take years, if we can even find proper methods. To help a herald? Well, sir, their problems seem far beyond mine. I know, soldier, Dalinar said. But I think Ishar's malady is supernatural in nature, and he gave me clues to help him recover. All I need from you now is an agreement to help, and a willingness to travel to Shinovar in somewhat, er, uh, odd company. Sir? Kaladin asked. I'll explain later, Dalinar said. I need time to think this over, decide what I really want to do. Kaladin nodded, but glanced at Syl, who whistled again. Ten days? she said. I guess it's happening. Delinar started back toward his meeting, then paused and reached for something on a nearby table. A flute. Wits flute. Lift had this, Delinar said, handing it toward Kaladin. She said that had recognized it as yours. It is, Kaladin said with awe. How is Lift, by the way? My lunch is gone, Delinar said, so I'd say she's doing fine, We found her spren once the tower was restored, and they have, for some reason, decided to begin carrying around a bright red chicken. He sighed. Anyway, she said she found that flute in a merchant's bin down in the breakaway, one who sells salvage from the shattered plains. There might be other things your men were forced to abandon there. Huh. Did she say which merchant? Kaladin asked. The pursuer drew in a deep, angry breath as he woke. Then he screamed in rage. It felt good to have lungs again. It felt good to shout his frustration. He would continue to scream it. Killed, a second time, by that windrunner, that insolent mortal who thought his victory was due to his skill and not raw luck. The pursuer screamed again, glad for the sound to accompany his fury. His voice echoed. He was someplace dark, but enclosed. That made him pause. Shouldn't he be out in the storm? Are you quite done, defeated one, a voice said in their language, but with no rhythm. The pursuer sat up, twisting to look around. Who dares call me? He cut off as he saw who stood on the other side of the room, lit only by a void-light sphere held casually in his hand, a sleek figure looking out a dark window, his back to the pursuer. The figure had twisting horns on his head and carapace that reflected the light wrong. He always ripped off his natural carapace formations at each rebirth, then replaced them with metal inclusions, They were incorporated into his body by Voidlight Healing and his own special talents. L, the one with no title. The pursuer silenced himself. He didn't fear this fused. He feared no one, but to L, he did not complain. Where am I? The pursuer asked instead. Why have I been reborn so quickly? I was unbraised for barely a day before I felt the pull. We didn't want to wait, L said softly, still facing away from the pursuer. No rhythms, L was forbidden rhythms. So we had it done the old way, the way before the storms. I thought Odium wasn't doing that any longer. Our new god made an exception defeated one. The pursuer grunted, picking himself up off the ground. They gave your title to another, you know, a human. I've heard. Disrespectful, the pursuer said to Derision. It should have remained unused. Give me that void light. I need to recharge myself to earn back my legacy. Earn back? The pursuer forced himself to keep his tone respectful, to not shout. The one with no title could be difficult. I will hunt the mortal who killed me, the pursuer said. I will kill him and then anyone he ever loved. I will murder mortal after mortal until my vengeance is recognized, my atonement made. I assume you all know this if you couldn't wait for me to be reborn. So give me that damn void light. l turned, smiling in the shadows. It is for you, Lesian. Excellent, the pursuer said, stalking forward. But you mistook me, l said. When we said we did not want to have to wait for your rebirth, it was not your convenience that troubled us, but mine. I am very curious, you see, and you were the sole appropriate subject. Subject for what? The pursuer asked, reaching the window and looking out of her at night. Oh, to see if this really works. L raised the voidlight sphere, and the pursuer saw it was attached to a knife. Did the light look wrong somehow, warping the air around the gemstone? I think this might hurt, El said, then grabbed the pursuer by the front of his beard. Enjoy this final passion, defeated one. He plunged the knife down as the pursuer struggled, and his soul ripped itself apart. Kaladin walked the now bright streets of the breakaway, bathed in cool, steady light from above. The transformation the tower had undergone already was amazing. The air had become as warm as it was in Aesir, an envelope of temperate weather that extended out to the fields. People breathed more easily now. The entire tower was not only properly ventilated— It had water running through hidden pipes into many rooms, like they had in rich cities such as Carbronth. And that was just the beginning. While some rooms in the tower had once held normal wooden doors, many others had stone doors that opened to the touch. They hadn't realized how many rooms they'd missed while exploring because they'd been closed when the tower had last shut down. The place was truly a wonder he finally found the merchant shop Lyft had told Dalinar about. Though the hour was growing late, the market was busy with people celebrating, so a lot of the shops were open, this one included. Kaladin was directed to a bin of salvage, and he began rifling through it, Sill on his shoulder. He found Rock's razor and some of Sigzil's brush pens, and he held up a miniature wooden horse carved in exacting detail. Sil breathed out an awed sound. I lost this before coming to the Shattered Plains, Caladon said. I lost this in Alithkar. Tien gave it to me the day we were recruited into the army, and it was taken with my other things when I became a slave. How? He clutched the horse close to his chest. He was so amazed that he walked off and had to come running back to pay for what he'd taken. After that, he trotted back toward the tavern. He'd promised earlier that he would meet Dabid, Norrell, and the others he'd rescued from the monastery sick rooms to decompress from yesterday's events. Kaladin would do as Dalinar asked, and go to save the Herald Ishi. That was for tomorrow, however. Today, Kaladin had another promise to keep. After all, he'd told Teft he would join these meetings and start taking care of himself. Dalinar felt energized as he smelled the crisp, cool air of the mountains. He stood at the very top of the tower, drinking it in while holding Navani, her warmth pressed against him. The sun had set, and he'd had enough of reports for the day. He wanted time with his wife and to look at the stars. I should have known you'd find a way out of it on your own he whispered to Navani as Noman bathed them in light. I should have seen your potential. She squeezed his arms. I didn't see it either. I spent a long time refusing to do so. Dalinar heard a rumbling in his mind, not angry rumbling though, more uh, contemplative. The Stormfather doesn't know what to make of this, Dalinar said. I think he finds it strange. Apparently his bondsmith and the night watcher's bondsmith sometimes had relationships, but the sibling's bondsmith was always apart. The sibling is curious that way, Navani said. I'll introduce you once they are ready. It might take them time. As long as it's within ten days, Dalinar said. I can't guarantee what will happen after then. That deal you made she said. I'm sorry, I had to make an agreement while I had him. It isn't everything we wanted, but it's a good deal, Dalinar, Navani said. Inspired even. We will have peace even if we have to give up Alethkar. I think we've all been coming to realize that was a probability. Instead, this gives us a chance. I just wish that last bit you agreed to that worries me. He nodded. Yes, he whispered. I know. This was his job, though, to sacrifice himself, if need be, for everyone else. And that in that Teravangian was right. It still felt so wrong for Teravangian to be dead. Dalinar would never have a chance to prove to Teravangian that Dalinar's way was correct. Gone. Without a farewell. Burned away in another stupid plot to manipulate Zeth. At least we can stop the bloodshed, Navani said. Tell our troops to hold position and wait for the contest. Yes, Dalinar said. Unless... Should Dalinar have insisted the contest happen sooner? He didn't feel ready. But would he ever... Something feels wrong, he thought. Something has changed. We need to be ready for these next ten days. He felt that truth like a twisting in his stomach. I feel your tension, Navani said. I'm second-guessing what I've done, Dalinar said. The best information we have indicates this contest is our most reasonable hope of success, Navani said and I doubt anyone the enemy presents can best storm I'm not going to pick, Kaladin, Jim Hart. Why? Navani asked. He's our best warrior. No, Delinor said. He's our best soldier. But even if he were in peak fighting shape, I don't think he'd be our best warrior, or our best killer. Witt says the enemy can't violate our agreement and isn't likely to try to misinterpret it, not intentionally. In fact, Wit seems to think the victory is already ours, but he got what he wanted. Odium will remain trapped either way. I'm worried, though. There's more I'm missing, I'm sure of it. At the very least, I think I left Odium too much room to continue fighting in the coming ten days. We'll find the answers, Stellanar, Navani said. We have a goal now. If we can win this contest, that will be enough. We will find a way to live in this new world, with the singers in their lands and humans in ours. Navani squeezed his arm again, and he took a deep breath, intent on enjoying this moment. Storms had felt good to be holding her. Beneath them, the tower's lights shone brightly in the night and down in the corridors, it was positively warm. He'd had to come all the way up here to smell mountain air. I should have known, Delanor repeated, about you. I don't think so, Nivani said. It was a remarkable stroke of luck that I figured it all out. Not luck, Delanor said. Conviction, brilliance. I was scared for you, but should have remembered when I was scared of you and realized how much danger the fused were in by trying to take your fabrials from you. You are incredible. You've always been incredible. She breathed out a long, contented sigh. What, he said. It's good to hear someone say that. He held her for an extended moment of peace. But eventually, their crowns came calling. People came looking for Navani to settle something regarding the tower, and she was forced to leave. Dalinar lingered on the top of the tower. He settled down on the edge, putting his legs over the side, the place where Kaladin had reportedly leapt into the darkness of the storm. You were wise to give the Windrunner more time during his fall, the Stormfather said, approaching Dalinar. You were wise to show... Mercy. It's an important concept to learn, Dalinar said to him. The more you study it, the more human you will become. I do not wish to become human, the Stormfather said. But perhaps I can learn. Perhaps I can change. That's all it takes, Dalinar said. A willingness. You are wrong, though. I do understand mercy. I have expressed it on occasion. Really, Delanor said, curious. When?
1: 117. One final gift. Fourteen months ago. Eshenai hit the ground of the chasm in a furious splash. Above, The battle for Narak continued, and the rest of the listeners summoned the Everstorm. She should be leading them. She was foremost among them. She leaped to her feet and shouted to a dozen horrible rhythms in a row, her voice echoing in the chasm. It did no good. She had been defeated by the human shard-bearer, sent tumbling into the chasms. She needed to get out of here and find the fight again. She started trudging forward. Though the water came up to her waist, the flow was not swift. It was merely a constant, steady stream from the weeping, and in shard plate she was able to walk against the current, her greaves flooded with chill water. Which way was which? The lack of light confused her, but after a moment of thinking, she realized she was being silly. She didn't need to go either direction. She needed to go up. The fall must have dazed her more than she'd realized. She picked a rough-feeling section of wall and began clawing her way up. She managed to get halfway to the top, using the awesome gripping strength of shard plate, the rhythm of conceit pounding in her ears. But then the way the chasm wall bulged presented a problem. In the darkness, she couldn't find a proper handhold and the flashes of lightning above were too brief to help. Lightning? Was that lightning too frequent, too bright, to be coming from other storm forms? Her own powers had been ruined by the water, naturally. She could barely feel any energy in her. It flooded out the moment it started to build. What was happening? That was the everstorm coming, wasn't it? Yes, she could feel its power, its energy. It's beauty. But there was something else. Listening to the howling wind, she realized what it was. A second storm. A high storm was coming as well. She attuned the rhythm of panic. The two storms clashed, making the very ground tremble. Clinging to the wall within the chasm, Eshenai felt the wind howling above. The lightning made her feel like she was blinking her eyes quickly light and darkness alternating. Then she heard a roar, the terrible sound of water surging through the chasm, becoming an incredible wave. She braced herself, but when the water hit, it ripped her off the wall. It was here, within these high storm rainwaters, that Eshenai's first battle began, the fight for survival. She slammed into a rock, her helmet cracking. Escaping, stormlight lit the dark waters as they filled her helmet, suffocating her. She thrashed in the current and managed to grab something hard, an enormous boulder lodged into the center of the chasm. With a heave, she pulled herself out of the water. A few precious moments later, her helmet emptied, letting her gasp for air. I'm going to die, she thought, the rhythm of destruction pounding in her ears. Water thundered around her, splashing her armor, and lightning spasmed in the sky above. I'm going to die, as a slave. No. An ember within Eshonai came alive, the part of herself she'd reserved, the part that would not be contained, the part that made her let Thud and the others escape. It was the core of who she was, A person who had insisted on leaving the camps to explore. A person who had always longed to see what was over the next hill. A person who would not be held captive. That was when her second battle began. Eshenai screamed, trying to banish the rhythm of destruction. If she was to die here, she would die as herself. It was a high storm. In high storms, transformations came upon all people, listeners and humans alike. Within a high storm, death walked hand in hand with salvation, singing a harmony. I began summoning her blade, but in a rumbling flash, her boulder shifted and she lost her grip. The rhythm of panic ruled her briefly as she was again submerged. Lightning flashing above made the water seem to glow as she was smashed into one chasm wall, then another. Not panic, not your rhythms. I reject you, my life, my death. I will be free. Sunken deep in the water, Eshonai summoned her blade and rammed it into the chasm wall. For some reason, she thought she could hear its voice, far away, screaming. She clung to it anyway, holding steady before the current. She banished all rhythms, but she could not breathe. Darkness began to close in upon her. Her lungs stopped burning, as if, as if everything was going to be all right. There, a tone, the strange haunting one she'd heard, when taking war form. It seemed one of the pure tones of Rochard. It began a stately rhythm. Then a second tone, chaotic and angry, appeared beside it. The two drew closer, closer, then snapped together. They melded into harmony, making a song of honor and odium both. A song for a singer who could fight but also for a soldier who wanted to lay down her sword. She found this tone as in the blackness, a small spren, shaped like a shooting star, appeared ahead of her. Eshenai strained, reaching, clawing. Her head came above water, and then her helm blessedly emptied. The rush of the river was slowing. She gasped sweet air, but then her hand slipped from her sword, and she slipped back under the water and was towed away, though with less force than before. She attuned the rhythm, the rhythm of war, the rhythm of victories and losses, the rhythm of a life at its end. To its beats, she resummoned her blade and rammed it into the ground, holding it tightly as the waters slowed further. She would not die. She would live. She was strong enough. Her journey was not at an end. Not yet. She held on belligerent until the water slowed, until the weight of her plate was enough to resist the current without her effort, and she slumped against the bottom of the chasm, her back to the wall, water streaming over her. She felt at her side, where the plate had broken, as had her body. She bled from a deep gash here, her carapace ripped away. Each breath came as a ragged, sodden mess, and she tasted blood. But in her mind, she cycled through the rhythms of her childhood awe, confidence, mourning, determination, then peace. She had lost the first battle, but she had won the second. And so, To the rhythm of victory, she closed her eyes and found herself drifting in a place full of light. What is this, Eshenai thought. You were highly invested when you died, a voice said. It rumbled with the sound of a thousand storms echoing through her. So you persist for a short time. Invested? Escher and I thought. You were radiant when you died. You couldn't say the words under the water. But I accepted them anyway. How do you think you survived that long without breathing? She floated. So, this is my soul? Some would call it that, said the rider of storms. Some would say, it is a spren, formed by the power you left, imprinted with your memories. Either way, this is the end. You will pass into eternity soon, and even I cannot see what is beyond. How long? I asked. Minutes, not hours. She had no eyes to close, but she relaxed in the light. Floating. She could hear the rhythms, all of them at once, with accompanying songs. What did it mean then, she asked as she waited. Life. Meaning is a thing of mortals, the rider said. It is not a thing of storms. That's sad. Is it? He asked. I should think it encouraging. Mortals search for meaning, so it is proper they should create it. You get to decide what it meant, Eshunai. what you meant. If I decide, then I failed, she thought. I gave my people to the enemy. I died alone, defeated. I betrayed the gift of my ancestors, I am a shame to all previous listeners. I would think the opposite, the writer said. In the end, you made the same choice as your ancestors. You gave away power for freedom. You know those ancient listeners as few ever have or ever will. That gave her peace as she felt her essence begin to stretch as if it were moving towards something distant. Thank you, she said to the rider. I did nothing. I watched you fall and did not stop it. The rain cannot stop the bloodshed, she said, fading. But it washes the world afterward anyway. Thank you. I could have done more, the rider replied perhaps I should have. It is enough? No, he said. I can give you one final gift. Eshenai stopped stretching, and instead found herself pulled toward something powerful. She had no eyes, but she suddenly had an awareness. The storm. She had become the storm. She felt every rumble of thunder as her heart beat. Watch, the rider said. You wanted to know what was beyond the next hill. See them all. She soared with him, enveloping the land, flying above it. Her rain bathed each and every hill, and the rider let her see the world with the eyes of a god. Everywhere the wind blew, she was. Everything the rain touched, she felt everything the lightning revealed she knew she flew for what felt like an eternity sustained by the rider's own essence she saw humans in infinite variety she saw the captive parshmen but saw the hope for their freedom she saw creatures plants chasms mountains snows she passed it all everything The entire world. She saw it. Every little piece was a part of the rhythms. The world was the rhythms, and Esh and I, during that transcendent ride, understood how it fit together. It was wonderful. When the rider finished his passage, exhausted and limping as he passed into the ocean beyond Shinivar, she felt him let go. She faded, but this time she felt her soul vibrating. She understood the rhythms as no one ever could, without having seen the world as she had. Farewell, Eshonai, the rider of storms said. Farewell, radiant. Bursting with songs, Eshonai let herself pass into the eternities, excited to discover what lay on the other side.
0: Epilogue, Dirty Tricks Wit strolled the hallways of Elokar's old palace on the shattered plains, searching for an audience. He flipped a coin in the air, then caught it before snapping his hand forward and spreading his fingers to show that the coin had vanished. But of course, it was secretly in his other hand, palmed, hidden from sight. Storytelling, he said to the hallway, is essentially about cheating. He tucked the coin into his belt with a quick gesture, keeping up the flourishes of his other hand as a distraction. In a moment, he could present both hands empty before him. He added to the theatrics by pushing back his sleeves. The challenge, he said, is to make everyone believe you've lived a thousand lives. Make them Feel the pain you have not felt, make them see the sights you have not seen, and make them know the truths that you have made up. The coin appeared in his hand, though he'd simply slipped it out of his belt again. He rolled it across his knuckles, then made it split into two, because it had always been two coins stuck together. He tossed those up, caught them, and then made them appear to be four, adding the two he'd been palming in his other hand. You use the same dirty tricks for storytelling, Wit said, as you do for fighting in an alley. Get someone looking the wrong direction so you can clock them across the face. Get them to anticipate a punch and brace themselves so you can reposition. Always hit them where they aren't prepared. With a flourish, he presented both hands forward, empty again. On his coat, design made a peppy humming sound. I found one, she said, in your belt. Hush, Wit said. Let the audience be amazed. The audience? Wit nodded to the side where a few odd spren were following in the air. Almost invisible and trailing red light, wind spren, but the wrong color. She was expanding her influence, that old one was. He was curious where it would lead. Also horrified. But the two emotions were not mutually exclusive. I don't think they care about your tricks, Design said. Everyone cares about my tricks. But you can make the coins vanish with light weaving, she said. So it doesn't matter how many you hide in your belt, and if you do something amazing, everyone will assume it was done with surge binding. Wit sighed, tossing four coins in the air, then catching them and presenting one solitary coin. They don't even use those for money here, Design added. So you'll only distract them. Use spheres. Spheres glow, Wit said, and they're tough to palm. Excuses. My life is only excuses, he wound the coin around his knuckles. The illusion without light weaving is superior design. Because it's fake? Because the audience knows it's fake, Witt said. When they watch and let themselves be amazed, they are joining in the illusion. They're giving you something vital, something powerful, something essential, their belief. When you and the audience both start a performance knowing that a lie is going to be presented, their willing energy vibrates in tune with yours. It propels you. And when they walk away at the end, amazed but knowing they've been lied to, with their permission, the performance lingers in their minds. Because the lie was real somehow. Because they know that if they were to rip it apart, they could know how it was done. They realize there must have been flaws they could have caught, signs, secrets. So it's better, Design said, because it's worse than an illusion using real magic? Exactly. That's stupid. Witt sighed. He bounced his coin off the ground with a metallic pling, then caught it. Would you go bother someone else for a while? Okay, Design said excitedly. She moved off his coat and to the floor, then zipped away. His audience of corrupted windspread trailed after her. Traitors. Wit started down a side hallway, but then felt something. A tingling that made his breaths go wild. Ah, he thought. He'd been expecting this. It was why he had left the tower, after all. Odium couldn't find him there. He hiked to Elikar's former sitting room and made himself available. Visible, easy to reach. Then, when the presence entered the nondescript stone chamber, Wit bowed. Welcome, Ray's. Wit said. It's been not nearly long enough. I noticed your touch on the contract, a dramatic voice said in his head. You've always been a clever one, Wit said. Was it my diction that clued you in, my keen bargaining abilities, or the fact that I included my name in the text? What game do you play here? A game of sense. What? Sense, Odium, the only kind I have is nonsense. Well, and some sense. But sense are nonsense here too, so we can ignore them. Sense are mine plenty, and you never cared for the ones I present. So instead, the sense that matters is the sense Delanar sensibly sent you. I hate you, raised dear. Wit said. You're supposed to be an idiot. Say intelligent things like that too much, and I'll need to reevaluate. I know you adjusted the contract, trying for an advantage. How does it feel to know that Delanar bested you? I shall have my vengeance, Odium said. Even if it takes an eternity, Sephandrius, I will destroy you. Enjoy that. Wit said, striding toward the door. Let me know how the brooding treats you. I spent a century doing it once, and I think it improved my complexion. So interesting, Odium said. How did I never see you there in all my planning? Tell me, whom would you pick as champion if you were in my place? Why does it matter? Wit asked. Humor me. Wit cocked his head. There was something odd about this change in tone from Odium. Asking whom Wit would choose? Rays wouldn't care to know. Never mind, Odium said quickly. It matters not. Whomever I pick, they will destroy Delanar's champion. Then I will use him and my minions on this planet to finally do whatever I wish. Yes, but where will you find that many willing horses, Wit said, continuing on his way out the door. He started whistling as Odium's presence remained behind. That had gone exactly as he'd imagined, except that last part. He slowed, turning the words over in his mind. Was Ray's growing more thoughtful? Wit didn't need to worry, did he? After all this, Odium would be safely imprisoned no matter what happened. There was no way out. Unless... Wit's breath caught, but then he forced himself to keep whistling and walking. A power slammed into him from behind. A golden energy, infinite and deadly. Witt's eyes went wide and he gasped, sensing something horribly wrong about that power. I have made an error, I see, the power said, soft and thoughtful. I am new to this. I should not have pushed for information. It's all about giving you what you expect. Even a being thousands of years old can be tricked. I know this from personal experience now. Who are you? Wit whispered. Odium, the power said, let me see, I cannot harm you, but here, you have used this other investiture to store your memories, haven't you? Because you've lived longer than a mortal should, you need to put the excess memories somewhere. I can't see your mind, but I can see these, can't I? For the first time in a long, long while, Wit felt true terror. If Odium destroyed the breaths that held his memories. I don't believe this will cause you actual harm, Odium said. Yes, it seems my predecessor's agreements will allow me to— Wit stopped in the hallways of Elakar's old palace on the Shattered Plains— He searched around, then cocked his head. Had he heard something? He shook his head and continued forward, looking for an audience. He flipped a coin in the air, then caught it before snapping his hand forward and spreading his fingers to show that the coin had vanished. But of course it was secretly in his other hand, palmed, hidden from sight. Storytelling, he said to the empty hallway, is essentially about cheating, He tucked the coin into his belt with a quick gesture, keeping up the flourishes of his other hand as a distraction. Then he heard a pling as something slipped free of his belt. He stopped and found one of his fake coins on the ground, the ones that could be stuck together to appear as one. But just one half? That should have been safely tucked away in the little pocket hidden in his shirt. He picked it up, glanced around to see that no one had noticed the mistake. Pretend you didn't see that design, he said. But she wasn't there on his coat. Storming Spren, had she slipped away when he hadn't been looking? He put a hand to his head, feeling an odd disorientation. Something was wrong, but what? The challenge, he said, tucking away the fake coin, is to make everyone believe you've lived a thousand lives. Make them feel the pain, the sights, the truths. Damn, it was wrong somehow. You use the same dirty tricks for storytelling, Wit whispered, as you do for fighting in an alley. Always be ready to hit them where they aren't prepared. But no one was listening. Hadn't there been a couple of Ja'anat's minions following him earlier? He vaguely remembered design chasing them away? Witz stared around himself, but then felt something. A tingling that made his breaths go wild. Ah, he thought. He'd been expecting this. It was why he had left the tower. Odium couldn't find him there. He hiked the short distance to Elicar's former sitting room and made himself available, visible, easy to reach. Then, when the presence entered the nondescript stone chamber, Wit bowed. Welcome, Rays," Wit said. It's been not nearly long enough. I noticed your touch on the contract, a dramatic voice said in his head. You've always been a clever one, Wit said. Was it my brilliant prose that clued you in? My keen bargaining abilities? Or the fact that I included my name right there for you to read? What game do you play here? A game of sense. What? Sense, Odium, the only kind I have is nonsense. Well, and some sense. He glanced down at the coin he still held in his hand, then cocked his head. I hate you. Rays, Witt said, looking up, you're supposed to be an idiot. Say intelligent things like that too much, and I'll need to reevaluate. Anyway, I know you adjusted the contract, trying for an advantage. How does it feel to know that Delanar Colin, a simple mortal, has gotten the better of you? I shall have my vengeance, Odium said. Even if it takes an eternity, Sophandrius. I will destroy you. Enjoy that, Wit said, striding toward the door. Let me know how you enjoy the time with yourself. The beyond knows no one else can stand your company. It doesn't matter, Odium roared. My champion will destroy Dalinar's, and then I will use him and my other minions here to do whatever I wish. Yes, well, Wit said from the door, Once you're done, at least try to remember to wash your hands. He slammed the door, then spun and continued on his way. He tried to find a tune to whistle, but each one sounded wrong. Something was fiddling with his perfect pitch. Odium's presence had remained behind. Was something wrong? Don't trouble yourself, he thought. This is working. After all, Witt's first face-to-face meeting with Odium in over a thousand years had gone exactly as he had imagined. The End of Book Four of The Stormlight Archive Endnote Burdens, our calling. Songs of home, a knowledge knowing a home of songs called Our Burden. Ketik, written by L., fused scholar of human art forms to commemorate the restoration of the sibling. Poem is curious in its intentional waiting of the last line where Alethi poets traditionally wait the center word and build the poem around it. Singers, it can be seen, have a different interpretation of the art form.
1: Ars Arcanum. The Ten Essences and Their Historical Associations. 1. Yes. Gemstone, sapphire, essence, zephyr, body focus, inhalation, soul casting properties, translucent gas, air. Primary and secondary divine attributes protecting, leading. Two non gemstone, smokestone, essence, vapor, body focus, exhalation, soul casting properties, opaque gas, smoke, fog. Primary and secondary divine attributes, just, confident. Three chatch. Gemstone, ruby, essence, spark, body focus, the soul. Soul casting properties, fire. Primary and secondary divine attributes, brave, obedient. Four, vev, gemstone, diamond, essence, lucentia, body focus, the eyes. Soul casting properties, quartz, glass, crystal. Primary and secondary divine attributes loving, healing. Five Pala Gemstone, emerald, essence, pulp. Body focus, the hair. Soul casting properties, wood, plants, moss. Primary and secondary divine attributes, learned, giving. Six Shash Gemstone, garnet. Essence, blood, body focus, the blood, soul casting properties, blood, all non oil liquid, primary and secondary divine attributes, creative, honest. Seven, betab, gemstone, zircon, essence, tallow, body focus, oil, soul casting properties, all kinds of oil. Primary and Secondary Divine Attributes, wise, careful. 8. Cock, gemstone, amethyst, essence, foil, body focus, the nails, soul casting properties, metal. Primary and Secondary Divine Attributes, resolute, builder. 9. Tanat, gemstone, topaz, essence. Talus. Body focus. The bone. Soul casting properties. Rock and stone. Primary and secondary divine attributes. Dependable. Resourceful. 10. Ishi. Gemstone. Heliodore. Essence. Sinew. Body focus. Flesh. Soul casting properties. Meats. Flesh. Primary and secondary divine attributes pious, guiding. The preceding list is an imperfect gathering of traditional voren symbolism associated with the ten essences. Bound together, these form the double eye of the Almighty, an eye with two pupils representing the creation of plants and creatures. This is also the basis for the hourglass shape that was often associated with the night's radiant. Ancient scholars also placed the ten orders of knights radiant on this list, alongside the heralds themselves, who each had a classical association with one of the numbers and essences. I'm not certain yet how the ten levels of void binding, or its cousin the old magic, fit into this paradigm, if indeed they can. My research suggests. That indeed there should be another series of abilities that is even more esoteric than the void bindings. Perhaps the old magic fits into those, though I am beginning to suspect that it is something entirely different. Note that I currently believe the concept of the body focus to be more a matter of philosophical interpretation than an actual attribute of this investiture and its manifestations. The Ten Surges. As a complement to the essences, the classical elements celebrated on Roshar are found the Ten Surges. These, thought to be the fundamental forces by which the world operates, are more accurately a representation of the ten basic abilities offered to the heralds and then the knights radiant by their bonds. Adhesion. The Surge of Pressure and Vacuum. Gravitation, the surge of gravity. Division, the surge of destruction and decay. Abrasion, the surge of friction. Progression, the surge of growth and healing or regrowth. Illumination, the surge of light, sound, and various wave forms. Transformation, the surge of soul casting. Transportation, the surge of motion and realmatic transition. Cohesion, the surge of strong axial interconnection. Tension, the surge of soft axial interconnection. On the creation of fabrials. Five groupings of fabrials have been discovered so far. The methods of their creation are carefully guarded by the artifabrian community but they appear to be the work of dedicated scientists as opposed to the more mystical surge bindings once performed by the knights radiant. I am more and more convinced that the creation of these devices requires forced enslavement of transformative cognitive entities known as spren to the local communities. Altering Fabrials Augmentors These fabrials are crafted to enhance something. They can create heat, pain, or even a calm wind, for instance. They are powered, like all fabrials, by stormlight. They seem to work best with forces, emotions, or sensations. The so-called half-shards of Ya'keved are created with this type of fabrial attached to a sheet of metal, enhancing its durability. I have seen fabrials of this type crafted using many different types of gemstone. I am guessing that any one of the ten pole stones will work. Diminishers. These fabrials do the opposite of what augmenters do, and generally seem to fall under the same restrictions as their cousins. Those artifabrians who have taken me into confidence seem to believe that even greater fabrials are possible than what have been created so far, particularly in regard to augmenters and diminishers. Pairing Fabrials Conjoiners By infusing a ruby and using methodology that has not been revealed to me, though I have my suspicions, you can create a conjoined pair of gemstones. The process requires splitting the original ruby, the two halves will then create parallel reactions across a distance. Span reeds are one of the most common forms of this type of fabril. Conservation of force is maintained. For instance, if one is attached to a heavy stone, you will need the same strength to lift the conjoined fabril that you would need to lift the stone itself. There appears to be some sort of process used during the creation of the fabrile that influences how far apart the two halves can go and still produce an effect. Reversers Using an amethyst instead of a ruby also creates conjoined halves of a gemstone, but these two work in creating opposite reactions. Raise one, and the other will be pressed downward, for instance. These fabrials have only just been discovered, and already the possibilities for exploitation are being conjectured. There appear to be some unexpected limitations to this form of fabrial, though I have not been able to discover what they are. Warning, fabrials. There is only one type of fabrial in this set, informally known as the alerter. An alerter can warn one of a nearby object, feeling, sensation, or phenomenon. These fabrils use a heliodore stone as their focus. I do not know whether this is the only type of gemstone that will work, or if there is another reason heliodore is used. In the case of this kind of fabril, the amount of stormlight you can infuse into it affects its range. Hence... The size of gemstone used is very important. Wind Running and Lashings. Reports of the assassin in white's odd abilities have led me to some sources of information that, I believe, are generally unknown. The Wind Runners were an Order of the Knights Radiant, and they made use of two primary types of surge binding. The effects of these surge bindings were known. Colloquially among the members of the Order, as the Three Lashings. Basic Lashing Gravitational Change. This type of lashing was one of the most commonly used lashings among the Order, though it was not the easiest to use. That distinction belongs to the full lashing below. A basic lashing involved revoking a being's or object's spiritual gravitational bond to the planet below. Instead, temporarily linking that being or object to a different object or direction. Effectively, this creates a change in gravitational pull, twisting the energies of the planet itself. A basic lashing allowed a windrunner to run up walls, to send objects or people flying off into the air, or to create similar effects. Advanced uses of this type of lashing would allow a windrunner to make himself or herself lighter by binding part of his or her mass upward. Mathematically, binding a quarter of one's mass upward would have a person's effective weight. Binding half of one's mass upward would create weightlessness. Multiple basic lashings could also pull an object or a person's body downward at double, triple, or other multiples of its weight. Full lashing. Binding objects together. A full lashing might seem very similar to a basic lashing, but they worked on very different principles. While one had to do with gravitation, the other had to do with the force, or surge, as the radiance called them, of adhesion, binding objects together as if they were one. I believe this surge may have had something to do with atmospheric pressure. To create a full lashing, a wind runner would infuse an object with stormlight, then press another object to it. The two objects would become bound together with an extremely powerful bond, nearly impossible to break. In fact, most materials would themselves break before the bond holding them together would. Reverse lashing giving an object a gravitational pull. I believe this may actually be a specialized version of the basic lashing. This type of lashing required the least amount of stormlight of any of the three lashings. The wind runner would infuse something, give a mental command, and create a pull to the object that yanked other objects toward it. At its heart, this lashing created a bubble around the object that imitated its spiritual link to the ground beneath it. As such, it was much harder for the lashing to affect objects touching the ground, where their link to the planet was strongest. Objects falling or in flight were the easiest to influence. Other objects could be affected, but the stormlight and skill required were much more substantial. Light weaving A second form of surge binding involves the manipulation of light and sound in illusory tactics common throughout the Cosmere. Unlike the variations present on Cell, however, this method has a powerful spiritual element, requiring not just a full mental picture of the intended creation, but some level of connection to it as well. The illusion is based not simply upon what the light weaver imagines but upon what they desire to create. In many ways, this is the most similar ability to the original Yolish variant, which excites me. I wish to delve more into this ability, with the hope to gain a full understanding of how it relates to cognitive and spiritual attributes. Soul Casting Essential to the economy of Roshar is the art of soul casting. In which one form of matter is directly transformed into another by changing its spiritual nature. This is performed on Roshar via the use of devices known as soul casters, and these devices, the majority of which appear to be focused on turning stone into grain or flesh, are used to provide mobile supply for armies or to augment local urban food stores. This has allowed kingdoms on Roshar, where fresh water is rarely an issue because of high storm rains, to field armies in ways that would be unthinkable elsewhere. What intrigues me most about soul casting, however, are the things we can infer about the world and investiture from it. For example, certain gemstones are requisite in producing certain results. If you wish to produce grain, your soul caster must both be attuned to that transformation and have an emerald, not a different gemstone, attached. This creates an economy based on the relative values of what the gemstones can create, not upon their rarity. Indeed, as the chemical structures are identical for several of these gemstone varieties, aside from trace impurities, the color Is the most important part, not their actual axial makeup. I'm certain you will find this relevance of hue quite intriguing, particularly in its relationship to other forms of investiture. This relationship must have been essential in the local creation of the table I've included above, which lacks some scientific merit, but is intrinsically tied to the folklore surrounding soul casting. An emerald can be used to create food, and thus is traditionally associated with a similar essence. Indeed, on Roshar there are considered to be ten elements, not the traditional four or sixteen, depending upon local tradition. Curiously, these gemstones seem tied to the original abilities of the soulcasters who were in Order of knights Radiant, but they don't seem essential to the actual operation of the investiture when performed by a living radiant. I do not know the connection here, though it implies something valuable. Soul casters, the devices, were created to imitate the abilities of the surge of soul casting, or transformation. This is yet another mechanical imitation of something once available only to a select few within the bounds of an invested art. The honor blades on Rochar indeed, may be the very first example of this from thousands of years ago. I believe this has relevance to the discoveries being made on Scadriel and the commoditization of Alamancy and ferrucamy. Stone Shaping As I've had further occasion to study the use of investiture on Roshar and the curious manifestation of it known as surge-binding, I've found occasion to ruminate further on the nature of intent and connection. The power known as stone-shaping, as practiced by the orders of stone wards and will-shapers, is an excellent example of this. This ability manipulates the surge of cohesion, and is in many ways a cousin to the axial manipulation known as microkinesis, as both grant the ability to manipulate the forces that bind individual axi together. Fortunately, in my explorations, it appears that stone shaping is far less explosive of a power, bounded by the rules that honor placed upon it to protect from the mistakes that happened on Yolan. Nevertheless, a practiced stone ward or will shaper can mold stone as if it were clay, weakening the bonds between axi. Indeed, this can be done to other materials as well, I'm led to believe, but stone is the easiest and most common application. This is not simply a chemical process. Normally, one might expect heat to be involved to excite the axi, but this is not the case. Indeed, it is the intent of the user that is relevant here. The stone senses the desire of the stone ward, and the practitioner is able to shape it through desire as much as through physical force. I don't believe I properly understood the way investiture responds to the conscious intent of the user until I read of the interactions of spren and sapient beings on Roshar. There is so much to learn here and so much to explore. I have sent my best agent to embed among the stone wards. His research has been most illuminating. It suggests there are three ways we can look at the nature of intent as it relates to stone shaping. Willingness. Stone seems to be uniformly willing to obey the commands of a surge binder attuned to cohesion. This is curious, As stone is often among the most difficult of materials to work with in soul casting, even more difficult than living beings, depending on those beings' emotional, mental, and spiritual states. Why is stone so eager to change for a stone ward or will shaper? What about it makes it so likely to respond to their desires, to incorporate them, and to enjoy the result? Like a willing audience at a comedy, the stone lets the surge binder guide it. Connection. The stone can sense the intent of the surge binder, and even their past. I have reliable reports of stone reaching back through generations of connection to display events, feelings, emotions, and ideas from long ago. It will shape the faces of stone wards long dead. It will create pictures of events long forgotten. What I initially dismissed as an inferior form of microkinesis is indeed much more focused and, in some ways, more remarkable. There is a divining property to stone shaping I had not thought to find. Command The stone shaper must often make a command, mental or verbal, to truly control the stone. This is much like many other arcana around the Cosmere, and is in itself not that novel. However, I find electrifying the news out of the mountains of Ur that their current queen seems to have been able to command the creation of an anti-investiture. Long theorized, this will be my first true evidence it is possible, and can only be created through intent. I think that perhaps Foyle, deep within his ocean, would find this information supports my theories over his. And he'd do well to listen to me on this matter, if he ever wishes to achieve control over the ethers, as he has insisted is his goal.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this production of Rhythm of War, Book 4 of the Stormlight Archive, a Macmillan Audio production for Tor Books. This title was produced by Steve Wagner. Post-production by Listen Up Audiobooks. Text copyright 2020, Brandon Sanderson. Production copyright 2020 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved.